Yeah, we will be renewing our Zoom membership. <laughs> Actually, we could. Oh, oh, I don't believe I just did that. <laughs> you idiot! <laughs> no. Clearly. <laughs> Hi there. Hey. Today's podcast will be how to use Skype. <laughs> Welcome to AT Banter, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything regarding the world of assistive technology with our hosts, Steve Barkley, Rob and Ryan Fleury. Now, let's banter. Hey there, and welcome to your favorite podcast. Just kidding. We're all looking at Rob going, That was great. Really? People need to get out more. No, it's just AT banter you put on. Here we are. Uh, what is this? Episode 22, sort of. Are you sure? Well, I sure. Oh, we have another lost episode? No. no, we just have the one lost episode. All right. Episode 19. Okay. What happened to episode 19? Uh, remember the, the podcast we did where I complained about math? Yeah. Yeah. Well. I forgot what number of podcast it was. I miscounted and I said it was episode 20. All throughout it, it wasn't episode 20. It was actually episode 19. Really? So. So I just called it episode 20. Yeah. So episode 19. Out there somewhere. Out there somewhere. We'll release it one day. Eventually. That can be our blooper reel. That's right. Episode 19. There you perfect. go. Yeah. <laughs> Ideal. Perfect. Uh, well, here we are together again. Steve is back. Together again. Yay. Here I am. Uh, yeah. So, so, so how good did... to be back here instead of out in the wilds of British Columbia, let me tell you. It's just, boy, being out in the great outdoors and watching the sunrise and the sunset that that just no, that was awful. Sitting out in the lake okay. fishing. Yeah, yeah. So much better to be here in front of a <laughs> microphone in a gray concrete room. Uh, wait, did you go fishing or did you go hunting or both? Both. Okay. Did both. you catch any fish? I caught a fish. Okay. I, a I fish. actually I actually hooked and got to the boat uh, a really nice big trout, like probably about a four pound trout. Mm. Uh, but we didn't have a landing net, and when we uh, lifted it to bring it into the boat, it was heavy enough that it snapped the leader line and. Oh uh, wow. Yeah, that would have been a nice fish, mm-hmm. but but he's now somebody else's fish to get. And <laughs> oh. no deer. No deer. Didn't see Bambi. Or Bambi's, well, we saw Bambi. We didn't see Bambi's dad. We mm. were looking for Bambi's dad, but uh, Bambi's dad was not to be found. He's a crafty bugger, that one. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. So you can't, um, can you not shoot female deer? The, the opening in the area that we were in was for uh, either whitetail or mule deer bucks. Okay. Or whitetail does. Uh, we didn't see any whitetail does. Uh, we saw one whitetail buck way across a valley standing in a farmer's field going, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, on the side that we were hunting on, we didn't see anything other than, than does. Hmm. Whitetail does. Or sorry, uh, uh, mule deer does. Doe a deer, a female deer. And don't think that didn't play through my head the entire time I was out there. See, that sounds like hell. You're just sitting in the wilderness with annoying songs going through your head, waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Yeah, the, fr- the frustrating part was that there were all these guys, you know, we're, we're sitting on a, on a cut block waiting for, you know, watching for tracks. You know, you go out, you scope out tracks and then, you know, mule deer tend to follow the same paths every day. So we're, uh, we're sitting out there, you know, we found some tracks, we're waiting for something to walk out of the woods. And then some guy comes driving by on a four-wheel ATV. <laughs> There go the deer. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're totally going to see something now. Uh-huh. That's what PETA should do if they really mm-hmm. oppose hunting, you know? They should just get out in the wilderness and drive around on ATVs. <laughs> That's and, a great idea. Yeah. To be just like the Greenpeace guys who, like, drive the boats in between the the uh, fishing trawlers and the whales. Right, and the yeah. whales. Yeah. Yeah. Sea Shepherd Society. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There, there you go. go. There's a good strategy for uh, all you... Uh, all you animal lovers out there who don't yep. love them but don't want to eat them. That's right. Yeah. 
Uh, hey, how about that Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly in meltdown mode now. Debate tonight. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. It should be fun. <laughs> That's right. And did you hear Michael Moore is releasing a documentary today? I heard oh, that. Oh, is he? But, yeah. But honestly, like, is Michael Moore going to change anybody's mind? No, Does no. Does anybody no. on the Trump side actually pay any attention to Michael Moore? Other than to say, hey, he's a big fat liberal. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting. Like, if nothing else, it'll be entertaining. I, yeah. Michael Moore doing something on Donald Trump is just going to be gold. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be gold. Well, just as an aside, on my hunting trip, out of the seven guys who are on my hunting trip, five of them were Trump supporters. <laughs> what? Yeah. He's, uh, he's got support out there. He does have support yeah. out there. Yeah. 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 White males. Who yep. love guns and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got pilloried the entire time. <laughs> I was just a big fat liberal. I kept pointing out to them social democrat, but no, they they it was either liberal or commie. I was one or the other. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> well, at least they didn't shoot you. Well, that's true. <laughs> For a conservative crowd, they were very good about unlocking, uh, unloading their guns, and putting trigger locks on them. So. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Hmm. Today, we are joined by two fabulous vision teachers, Sophia Devshi and Daphne Hitchcock, both in the British Columbia education system. Uh, Sophia is up in uh, the uh, Nelson, BC area, and Daphne's in the Victoria, BC area. Hi, Sophia and Daphne. Hello. Hello. Hey there. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Welcome. Bet you're glad you're not part of the Vancouver School Board. <laughs> they were fired for all those people who are not in the province. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to throw that in. Yeah. There's got to be a little bit of political discussion. Every episode. <laughs> That's right. Usually it's about Donald Trump. So That's it's, right. It's unusual that we're not talking about. We might still get there. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and the clown sightings. I'm sure That's we'll right. be talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, first off, um, maybe I can ask each of you what got you involved in vision teaching. How did you How did you come here? Who wants go to ahead, start? Daphne. You go first. Oh, okay, <laughs> sure. I got involved in vision teaching years ago in Alberta. I uh, ended up with a special ed degree and a one course in Braille, and walked into a classroom uh, with five uh, uh, Braille reading students, and then. Um, decided to get some education and went back to university um, to keep pursuing that area of study. So I've been, I'm been doing it for, for a long time, but um, I love it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my story is pretty typical, I think, of many teachers who've become teachers of the visually impaired. I was a classroom teacher and then I was a case manager. And um, in the school that I worked at in Squamish, um, we had a student join our school in the middle of the school year, and he was visually impaired, and I became very interested in his uh, unique educational needs and um, worked with the teacher of the visually impaired back then. And uh, she, uh, you know, enticed me and um, said that, uh, you know, the job, uh, being a teacher of the visually impaired is one of the best jobs that you can you can have. It's very amazing. And so I, I was in a different master's program um, at that time, and I switched over to the master's program of uh, teaching children who are blind and visually impaired at UBC. And Daphne, where, where did you get your education? I started at San Francisco State University. Uh, UBC did not have a a master's program at that time. And it was during the years, uh, late 70s, early 80s, when the residential schools in BC had, in, or in Canada had, uh, were closing. So for the first time, we had blind students right in our regular schools and not really, really well prepared for that. So it was a summers only program. I would teach in the winter session, go down and do, do the coursework um, in the summers. Um, very, very fortunate to work with um, sort of cutting edge, I guess it was, as far as the field, uh, Phil Hatlin and um, Natalie Baraga were our profs, Sally Mangold, Phil Mangold was a prof. So a lot of the people that were, were writing the books um, were, were the instructors, which at the time I didn't realize how 
early on we were in this whole process, but um, coming back to my classroom with five students all reading Braille and finally feeling like I had some sense of direction for them and to start working on expanded core curriculum with them was pretty, pretty amazing. And um, I've been so fortunate to have kept in this field and to continually be challenged every every year. There's something brand new to learn and something to embrace as far as um, new possibilities for our kids and for myself too. So. What um what what's involved in vision teacher training? What 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 do you learn as a as a vision teacher going through the education system? Uh, for me, first of all, we, we really need to learn the specialized skill development. So learning Braille, learning how to use the specialized technology. So there, there's that component, but there is also a whole um, part of learning the areas of the expanded core curriculum in terms of how do you teach a blind student um, to um, navigate um, in terms of uh, safe mobility. So there's that access aspect of it. There is the aspect of um, um, being able to take everyday tasks like uh, cooking and such and making it accessible for our students. So we weren't always working with, um, or I don't always work with totally blind students. A lot of my students are low vision. So it's again, teaching them what are the options for gathering information so that they're going to access stuff in school. Yes, and it was the same in, in my program at UBC as well. Really, we had this giant textbook that I'm looking at right now, this giant purple textbook with that has two mm-hmm. volumes in it. It was our Foundations of Education textbook um, by Alan Koenig and Kay Holbrook. Um, Kay still runs a program at the University of British Columbia, and she um, was my professor for many of the courses. But there are there's so much that goes into uh, teaching students who are blind or visually impaired. A master's program couldn't cover all of it. Um, you know, sure enough, you know, there's uh, we learned information about how to do different assessments, such as a functional vision assessment or a learning media assessment. You know, how to work with specific technology, not only uh, technology that um, is very unique to individuals who are blind, but also uh, everyday technology, right? So how does a low vision student um, use, say, a, a computer and how, how, do, how, do, how do you make those those computers and laptops and or other devices accessible um you know we have uh we learned about planning uh planning planning for um including the students in the classroom but also planning for um teaching expanded core curriculum skills such as as daphne said braille um and and also you how to use say low vision devices for for reading so there's a lot of a lot of information that goes into the course and something that um, that we don't really learn in the course and we perhaps learn more um, as we enter the field and work with students and their teams and including their parents is the emotional aspect of the job, right? Um, particularly when you have students who maybe uh, have have lost their vision later on in life or perhaps are or you know have um, a condition in which they their vision is going to deteriorate over time and that is a huge part of our program to work with families in a in a way that that works for them you know um, it's it's something that uh, we didn't touch in on, on the poor program but um, something that is very important. I, I feel sometimes that we, we almost become the lifeline of these, these children and their families in a sense. Yeah. yeah anyway, I that's a long answer. <laughs> it's so great because we get to follow the students right through their whole education. So we children coming in in kindergarten, we'll, we don't just see them for the year. We follow them as they go through middle school and into high school and, it's such a privilege to be able to really know these know these families and get to know the children and and help them um, accommodate for their different needs at the time. And and as Daphne said, because we 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 get to we're so privileged to have these students right from kindergarten right to the time that they graduate. We really 
they really do become in a sense, you know, a part of the family, a part of the vision community family. Um, and uh, it's, it's unlike being a, a classroom teacher um, where you get these really short sort of spurts of, you know, one year, you have a student, maybe two years, if it's a, you know, a, a split class or something like that. But, we, you know, we get, it's, it's just this amazing experience and this amazing journey that we take with these students and these families um, that, I, that I feel, yes, we are very privileged to, to, to have. What, what would the two of you say, uh, if, you, if you look back at all the students that you've taught, what, what or who, uh, you know, without naming names, was your greatest success? Oh, I don't know. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, there really are. There's nothing. Um, oh, there's so many. Whether the child's low, a low vision student or a Braille reading student, you take, I guess, you have these highlights of, of their games or seeing their games and you think, oh, my gosh. It's, I mean, I get goosebumps when I first watch a child actually reading with a braille with her hands and really reading like really reading it's just such such a delight to see that ah oh, that light bulb come on that aha moment but it's just as exciting today for instance i had a little guy first time he's used a uh, room viewer technology so we had a, a acrobat plugged in and we were exploring the room and he was able to find his name up on the bulletin board and he says, oh, that's me. That's my name. And, oh, it was just so cool. And I went running over to the where the root in the room where his name was and then called to him. And he, it was uh, like, oh, my gosh, I'm, it, you could almost see, it was just neat because he was so, like, how could I do that? How could I be seeing you up close when you're way over there? It was, oh, it was cool. <laughs> uh, there are so many moments. And in Will be something that happens, you know, once a week. That's kind of this amazing, amazing epiphany or this amazing moment. And like Daphne said, I have those moments with students too when I've when I've introduced a magnifier, you know, or or a low vision device or a monocular. The monoculars are great because all of a sudden these students are are going, wait a minute, I can I can look across the street or you know, um, uh, you know, a CCTV or a video magnifier, you know, so. It's it's one of these, um, and we forget also as teachers, we forget that oh yeah they they actually you know without the use of the this device they would not be able to access that information across the wall they can't access their own name across the wall and so it's such a delight to give a, a piece of technology or low vision um, you know low tech or high tech technology to a, to a student and and uh, and see what blossoms from that for me i think some of the the most amazing moments have been in the outdoors um, introducing students who are blind or visually impaired to hiking or climbing or kayaking uh, those are uh, times that are really special for me because I I am a little bit of an outdoorsy person and I live in an area where it's really um, an amazing place to do those types of activities. And so and many times our students um, are not included in school activities which involve climbing, uh, perhaps because, you know, the school or the district might feel that it's a risk factor. Um, so for me personally, um, I love getting the students together and and getting them out on on onto the center, see uh, what can be accomplished in the outdoors. In, in terms of, of hurdles, difficulties, what what do you find is the most difficult uh, skill or course to teach? Um, I think for me, it, sometimes it's the the sciences when you're having to. Eat, when the kids are using microscopes and uh, having to do a lot of measuring. Um, it's not the difficulty, it's, it's the coordination of equipment, which I find difficult. Um, and it's not so much that the student can't grasp, but it's more it's in the managing of all the peripherals that we need to make sure that we have the right access. And that, that to me, becomes sort of like sometimes a bit overwhelming, but... 
What what sort of adaptations do you do you use in that sort of situation, like for measuring or uh, for uh, mi microscopes? I imagine, obviously, for a totally blind student or out of the question. But are are there adaptations for uh, microscopes that you use for low vision students? What I've used is I have used a um, video magnifier, and but the adaptations for the microscope. Um, we often we will use the video magnifier in in place of the microscope because the control of it is a, a lot easier. But again, it depends on what we're dissecting, and it also depends on my student's level of vision. So I've most of the kids that I've worked with have um, in that age have had um, more usable vision than than some of my younger students. So um, things like uh, uh, tactically raised um, uh, measuring devices, little level, little liquid level indicators, um, that kind of thing we've been using. So, yeah. For me, it's been uh, one of the more difficult subjects has been shop. So, you know, like woodwork, um, that kind of stuff. And it's not necessarily uh, difficult because things in the shop can be adapted um, quite easily, uh, either through, you know, tools or human manpower or, um, helpers. Uh, but the, the, the most difficult part about that is um, getting everybody, including the school staff, on board with um, the idea that the student can participate in in shop and woodwork, uh, and that you know adaptations can be made. Um, so, I think that that's that that's the first step in 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 sort of bringing down the anxiety of the, of the staff that's involved in that course. But um, after that, you know, um, things tend to move pretty smoothly when when everybody's on board and we're brainstorming. Uh, how to adapt a certain a certain tool that the student is going to be using in, in the shop class? Yeah. And do you find you run into that a lot, like the the staff members being surprised that students can actually participate in certain activities? Yes, yes. In certain classes, I do. Yeah. Uh, chemistry is one class, uh, and and like I said, shop and woodwork uh, would be another class. Um, uh, there was uh, once an outdoor class that was, uh, you know, the, the staff was a little bit hesitant, but um, with working with the staff members and working together with them to, and they, you know, they're part of the brainstorming to figure out how something is going to work with a student and for a student, that it doesn't only fall on the teacher of the visually impaired, that, that we're a team. Um, once we've established that, um, you know, things actually go pretty smoothly, but it's that initial step. I don't know, Daphne, if you've experienced that in the past at all. Yeah, no, it is. So are you bang on, Sophia? It is that team approach that really makes the difference because my expertise isn't in the specialized subjects. So I really depend on the other teachers to say, oh, well, maybe we could try using this device along with the devices you have. And it, and it's a combination of brainstorming and ideas of and putting equipment together that sometimes gives the student the access that we're looking for. So that team approach is, is huge. So for those who don't know, kind of like myself, um, you know, being that we have students who are visually impaired, low vision, blind, integrated into the classroom, how many students like do you have this year that you're currently working with and what ages and do you, what difficulties do you find working with the different age groups? Well, right now, I have a really small caseload in School District 8. I only have um, four students who are identified as being on my caseload. Two of those students are, we have different categories um, of, of uh, I guess, disability, and they are they're referenced under a letter. So category E is, is visual impairment. Um, and so I have 
just two students who are just category E students. That means that they only have a visual impairment and um, no additional disability. And then I have two other students who are on different categories, uh, whether that be autism or chronic health, uh, that also, in addition to uh, their, their main disability, they also have a vision impairment. Um, so they're not under my cat under a category E like the other two students are but all in all I have four students and uh, right now I don't have any students who are using Braille uh, and so I have two students with uh, all of the all four students um, are considered low vision um, is this typical uh, it's it's a very small caseload it's a very very small caseload right now the challenges um, well, you know, the two students who, who are under the category E, um, they are both high school students. And the great thing about those two is that they both attend the same school. So in terms of where I live in the Kootenai region, it is, um, it's a really huge uh, school district in terms of geography. So there's a lot of traveling to be done in my school district. That's the main challenge. So if I have students grouped together in one community, that's great because all I have to do is go to that community and then I can work with all the students in the community. But what happens in school district aid is that you often have a student who, um, who, are, who are students who are like 200 kilometers away from each other. And so you have to travel to go see these students. And, and as you know, traveling takes time and takes time away from how much time you have to work with each student. So that's the main challenge. It's not really the grade. It's not really, you know, what school they're in. It's for me, the challenge is traveling to get to these students um, and, and spending, you know, a meaningful amount of time with, with each student as opposed to driving everywhere. Um, school district eight, um, you know, it, it uh, it's centered around sort of around Kootenai Lake. Uh, we have two different time zones halfway through the year. So we have one area which is on the east side of Kootenai Lake that's on, say, the Alberta time. And then on the west side of Kootenai Lake is, um, you know, the regular British Columbia time. And then on either side of Kootenai Lake on the north side, we have a school that's, um, uh, you know, only has nine students and it's in this really rural, remote area. Um, and then on the south side, we have a school that's almost, you know, to to Creston. So, I mean, to Cranbrook, sorry. So, you know, it's uh, it's huge. And travel is is the challenge here. Traveling in not only distances, but also through the winter as well. Yeah, because the roads up there get really, yeah. really scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of mountain passes to go through. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I get to watch turkeys cross the road and, you know, wait for the, you know, to hang out with the moose on the side of the road or, uh, you know, see the coyotes or, you know, the caribou. It's you, great. You wouldn't happen um, to know where there's any white-tailed deer, would you? <laughs> no, it's lots of white-tailed deer, but you're not going to hunt them. <laughs> how, about, how about mule deer? First of all. And Daphne, what's your caseload like this year? Well, it's very full. I, um, I, my biggest problem is not having enough hours of school hours in the day. I've got... Uh, I, well, I have 12 uh, Category E students that I see every week. Um, of those students, two of them I see every day. These are both kindergarten students. They're both um, very, very low vision. I'm looking at um, doing a dual media with them, so they would be learning Braille as well. But at this point, we're still just working um with kindergarten routines, which is good. Um, so I see those kids in the morning and then um, I see the rest of the kids at two or three in the afternoon. And uh, typically um, I will um, put kids through my lunch hour and then try to get an extra student in that way. So of my category E students, the, the ones um, that I see throughout the week. There are, uh, let me see, uh, 
two of them that are um, Braille readers. One is a grade 12 student who is learning Braille as as she's losing her vision and and um, is very anxious to get the Braille under under um, control. I have another student who is in grade four who just uses Braille as as their primary media, and um, and then these two kind- kindergarten kids that are sort of going to be learning Braille, um, and most of my students. Well, um, I've got the six high school students, um, and they would all be low vision. Um, so they're um, just making sure their technology is up and running and that they have access to materials in large print if they need them or um, they have the right uh, accommodations for their, their lab classes as needed. That, that's another um, thing I see. But my biggest my biggest frustration is not enough time in the day. Like I just don't always feel like I can get everything done with the kids that I need to get done, but um, they're there tomorrow, so work out <laughs> tomorrow. <but laughs> well, it's, it's so great with the high school kids texting, though, because it just makes such a difference. Like they'll let me know, oh, I need such and such right away, and so it's right so much easier. I know Steve wants to jump in, but I have one more question too. <laughs> no, I'm in. No, I mean, I'm no, in. no, it's no, me. me. No, me. me, me. Oh, all right, all right. Um, so, Sophia, you touched on the fact that you um, have some kids that um, are on the autism spectrum as well as low vision. Mm-hmm. H- how do you manage that? Like, what type of toolbox do you use to manage or teach these kids with multiple disabilities? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, and you know, my answer to that is it really depends on the context. (laughs) Um, and every individual, uh, is so different and every individual who has autism is different and every individual who has a vision impairment is so different with their vision, with their vision loss. So, uh, for, so I have two, two students with additional disability. One student has, um, down syndrome and the other one has autism And one is in high school and one is in elementary school. Um, how do I manage that? With a lot of help and support. Uh, the one thing about being in this field and working with such a varied um, community of students is that uh, you don't know all of the answers. Uh, and so you have to go out and and get answers and ask the people that, that have the answers or, or have taught uh, you know, similar situation, similar situations in the past. So that's how I deal with it. I ask a lot of questions and I try to get to, um, I try to talk to experts. Right. So with, with the student, uh, right now who's in high school, who'll be graduating this year, um, his needs have changed considerably from the time he was in kindergarten to now. And, and that's another aspect of it as well, managing uh, the, the growth of the child and where to go next. So, you know, we, we have had a student who has, uh, has come a long way and, and now is ready to graduate. Um, it's, you know, the only thing that I can say is that it's a huge team and we ask for a lot of support. Some of the support comes from, from the ministry. We have something called... Um, Popard, uh, which is a, a group of support consultants who come out from Vancouver, and they are trained in um, providing uh, curricular supports or life skill supports for uh, individuals who are who have autism. And so they come out and, and do some consulting with with the team as well, and we gather information that way as well. Um, another way is we have the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired, and I do call on them a lot. Uh, and they come out and help support as well in providing resources for for students. Not only do they come out and provide resources and, and support, face-to-face support, but they also have information in their library that, that may pertain specifically to individuals who have autism and, and a vision impairment. So teachers of the visually impaired can go to the Provincial Resource Center and, and, and get these resources and read up on it. And then on, on top of that, we have experts in the field right here in British Columbia who are teachers of the visually impaired and who have taken on um, learning more about uh, 
you know, the educational process of individuals who have autism as well. So that's what I do. That's how I manage it. I, I go to as many places as I possibly get can and get information and bring it back to the team. And we work from there. Steve, your turn. <laughs> okay. When when you're evaluating um, who you're going to teach Braille to and who you're not, what what did, what sort of things do you factor in? What sort of considerations do you have for that? We sure we really rely on learning media assessment that um, has been around for a while, and it's a, a really useful tool that looks at how the student is approaching things in their environment and not only at school, but also at home. And the other thing that we rely on a lot is doing a functional vision assessment with a student. So looking at how that child is using their vision in different settings, whether it be in the classroom or in the gymnasium or the library outside, uh, in bright sun, in, you know, lesser sun, and how they're using their vision again in the home. So it's pulling together a lot of information and it's often not a line drawn in the sand that, okay, this child is going to be a braille reader and the student is not. It sometimes is a, a decision that is arrived at over a process and, and having done sort of our due diligence in, in, in assessment and also just watching how the child is interacting with, with print and accessing it within the classroom. Um, it, it definitely is a process. It's not, not, it's not sort of definitive for, for the kids that are, are both, um, using their vision and, and using their, their hands for gaining tactile information. I was just going to say, you know, it is certainly a process. Even the assessments are the process, the the learning media and the functional vision assessments. You know, I don't know about you, Daphne, but for me, I I probably go back um, and complete a, different components of the assessment probably five or six times. And in my reports, <laughs> it yeah. shows five or six dates that I have been uh, working with the student, uh, completing the assessment. So it takes time. Sometimes, sometimes it, it, it takes weeks before the assessment is complete. And, yep. um, and that's a time that's needed, particularly in those cases that, um, you know, you could, you could kind of go either way. I mean, you, <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. you, you do want to get, um, as good a reading as you possibly can on the student's needs. So, yep. um, yeah. And I find, too, with the really younger kids that um, we're so lucky because they're such great learners when they're super young and they're not pulled in with a lot of other things that they're worrying about. And and so often that's a great time to, to introduce Braille um, just because they've got keen little minds and they're going to remember it. And to me, it's it's about providing options for our students because we don't know down the road um, always whether or not the Braille is going to be something that they're going to have to have all the time. Again, the student's eye condition will will play into this if it's a degenerative condition. So far more that we would be starting to think, okay, we need to start looking at the Braille sooner that, rather than later. So, be, And just because Braille is a process in its learning, just as, as, as reading is a process, you really want to keep the momentum going with, with the kids. Um, in terms of the technology that you guys are using, like, how, what do you, what have you found that has really changed the game in, say, the past ten years? Like, I, you know, I'm assuming that uh, there's a lot of stuff that's become a lot more portable these days than than they ever used to be. Is that something that you've noticed? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. You're talking to somebody who hand wrote their thesis, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! That, I, that might have been more than ten years ago, Daphne. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's so having the ability. Well. First of all, the room viewers, the, the video magnifiers are amazing and they have become so much better in the last 10 years. The ones that are giving OCR or using OCR and the, the quality of the picture is just, is so, so crisp, so clear. Um, that's been a huge game changer for our low vision kids. And the refreshable braille devices again have 
got better and better and they're a huge game changer as well. Those would be my two favorite go to. Yeah. Uh, We have my students um, love their phones. (laughs) They, they do everything with their phones. They even connect to refreshable Braille displays with their phones. Um, in the past, when I've had a Braille user, this is this is something that she did. She they just love them, um, and and particularly, I mean, you know, they, they all have iPhones, and that's what I'm uh, familiar with as well. But uh, the accessibility that comes <laughs> with these ubiquitous devices, I mean, it's it's unreal. Uh, but yes. They, they want portability, and so they're going to, uh, you know, take the smallest device that they can get their hands on. <laughs> now, the iPhones are so great. One of my students was in Disneyland, and, and her parents were trying to describe the rides to her while they took a photo, and then she could see it. It was just like, oh, it's right there. That's what I'm going to go on. It was just so great to be able to – it's immediate, Yeah. And then, you know, uh, also for for just uh, teaching, I remember this one day, this one student really wanted to know what her nystagmus looks like, because, of course, you know, (laughs) students, they try to look at themselves in the mirror to see what their nystagmus looks like, and they obviously cannot tell what it looks like. So, you know, she gave me her iPhone, and I videotaped her eyes, and then she could see what what her nystagmus actually looked like. So as a, even as a teaching tool, um, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a really interesting, great device, actually. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the portability part of things. I mean, I remember when the book sense came out and I think I even have a book sense in my office with me here somewhere. And, I've and got how more popular. if you need some. <laughs> what, are you getting some? No, no, I've still got some. We've got them in our oh, clearance yes. section now. Yeah, <laughs> in the clearance section. Yeah, tons and tons of them. <laughs> so cheap. Sorry but I stop. remember how popular those were because they were so small. Uh, you know, and they were just like these little tiny, they kind of looked like phones, you know, and the kids could just stick them into their backpacks and it wasn't anything. And, you know, they could just take them out and it, 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 it was just so, um, you know, just so portable and easy to use that the kids just loved it. Now it didn't last long because of, of the, the phones that came out that did, um, you know, slightly similar things, but, um, Portability is a big plus for my population of students anyway here. Yeah. Yeah. It always, it always amazes me that we're all walking around now with, uh, with computers in our pockets that are more powerful than the computers that put men on the moon. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's a question for you. This, this one I'm, I have a, you have a what? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I have a student who who now thinks that the iPad is is too bulky. So there you go. <laughs> yep. Okay. So I'm I'm hoping this will be a fun question and not lead to any liability issues for you guys or you lawsuits. Pastor Steve's. <laughs> what is the biggest mistake you've made with a student? Huh. That's a really good question. <laughs> Uh, my biggest mistake is assuming they can't do it, and I, I I make that more often than I like to admit. Admit, and I if I let the student take the lead, very often I'm so happy that I have because just hmm, I'm just trying to think of one. Go ahead, Sophia, because but that would be like <laughs> well, I think my biggest mistake is. Um, setting a t- setting up a time to see a student uh, where I'm taking them out of a class that they really love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. PE class. <laughs> and, and this particular student who is now graduated still contact, like we still, you know, we still have contact with each other. And every time she sees me, which is not very often, she says to me, I still hated it when you took me out of PE class. <laughs> that was my best class. I loved it. And that's when you came and saw me all the time and I hated it. So <laughs> what a meanie. 
it actually um, created a little, a little bit of a rift between between us when we when I was her teacher, which made it difficult uh, for her to uh, for me to provide resources and support, and for her to take it as well. Right, so it's something that we have to be conscious about. I mean, what what is it that the student really wants, um, and you know, how are we going to provide the best uh, support for their needs in terms of what you know what they want in this particular case she did not want to be taken out of PE class so yeah and I think that's so true Sophia I think giving making sure that we're really flexible about our scheduling around what their needs are so that I'm thinking about a student that I was pulling out to do some uh, keyboard practicing with and she did not want to be out of class and so then taking that time that she really needed for the skill development and putting in a time um, outside of school hours because school became um, way more important. <laughs> and then so, you know, working in the home or working at lunch hour or a different time that, that we can both agree on, sometimes that helps. But yeah, kids hate to be pulled out of good stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's... I'm sure that there's more things that I've that I regret, but that's the one that comes to my mind right now. If something comes up a little later, <laughs> I will. We'll do a supplemental. Sure yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I can I can um, you know tell you a little bit more about um, small community stuff uh, and and how uh, you know in in such small communities. I don't know about you, Daphne. You've got a pretty big caseload. Um, I don't know how often you touch base with with parents but in my case um you know over time parents uh i just become a part of my life here because it is such a small community and everybody does know each other and um so parents just become a part of my life in in and it's quite interesting because it, it, it this never happened to me when i was a classroom teacher in squamish but but it was, it was, sorry. Are, are you going into the closet to answer this question? So <laughs> make, make sure those parents don't hear what you're going to say about them. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. So they've, they've become part of, part of my life. So, so, you know, there, there are times when, you know, parents have been very stressed out about situations and, you know, have contacted me, you know, in the evenings and, you know, those type, those types of things are perhaps it's because of the low caseload and perhaps it's because of community, but it is quite, um, it's, it's more like dealing with family in a sense than, than, or, or good friends than it is, uh, with, with, uh, you know, just a teacher parent relationship sometimes can get a little uncomfortable. Um, so, and, you know, living in small communities, it's, it's just a different way, I guess, of, 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 of approaching the job. Uh, this, or last year, um, you know, a couple of my students went to New York City with us and, you know, their parents came along and it was really quite interesting to, to have these parents come along with their, with their, with their kids and, um, and to see them in a totally different context altogether. Uh, I don't know if having such a close relationship with parents is necessarily a good thing. It's something that I am kind of battling right now. Uh, not that there, there, have ever been any bad situations or anything, but, uh, it, it is a, it's something that I battle actually, you know, how, how close do you get to these students and how close do you get to these parents, because of course you're with them from kindergarten to grade 12. And oftentimes, you know, these students are contacting you after they graduated and their parents are still in contact with you. Uh, so it's, it's part of, I guess, working in a small community. I don't know, Daphne, if you feel like you have this type of. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I think it's, I think a lot of it, Sophia, is just because we know the kids so well from K to 12 and as they go through different phases, like, oh, I can remember talking to one of the moms about her daughter. Oh, she's going through that stage. I can't talk to her. And, you know, it it sort of, you end up almost 
feeling like you're mentoring the parents as well as mm. working with the student or or being a good listening ear for the parents. So it's, it is really interesting, the dynamic, I think, that gets built um, between the teacher, the visually impaired, and, and the family. Because I think it is quite unusual. It is. And and sometimes it's, it feels um, difficult. Like you don't know how to navigate around it. Yeah. You, know? you have to be a good ear and a good listener, uh, yeah. perhaps even a bit of a counselor in some situations. Right. Um, and right. at the same time, you have to keep that professional uh, yeah. edge to you as well. Sometimes that's difficult as a teacher of the visually impaired. It's it's all about to helping families connect with one another, and I think that I mean again, it's the privilege of being in a community that's so small that we know who the families are, and helping them to um, to find people find people that are going through different the same sort of um, issues that they're going through is helpful. I think too, it, because we get to know the kids, and we often will pull them together for. Um, social activities throughout the school year. So, well, for in Victoria, we're so lucky because we have Sugan Sandwich here. So we get quite a gang of kids together. And again, the parents are sometimes are involved in those situations and sometimes not. But it is such a, it's so good to be able to build those connections and help families um, get together. Have you ever had the psycho family? Maybe there's a few I regret giving my home phone number to. <laughs> no, no. Yes. No. Yes. It's it's always good. <laughs> I I find that it takes a lot of my mental time sometimes, right? Like yeah. even though I come home from work, um, and perhaps I'm not really, you know, doing any work after school, you know, I'm not on my computer. Maybe I'm just making dinner. Who knows? But I'm constantly thinking, I find, about about these families and um, and what I'm going to say to them. And also, I mean, when you do have the psycho family, you know, you're constantly thinking about what you're, <laughs> how you're going yeah. to approach a situation as well. Yeah. So it, it comes, it, it trickles in. Sometimes it flows into my home life as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, they become our kids in yeah. a lot of ways. I think think of them pretty constantly. Yeah, and you'd have to be passionate yeah. about what you're doing. You oh. definitely have to be passionate about what you're doing. Yes, you do. Uh, absolutely. I think though the one of the most exciting parts of the job is the opportunity to always be learning something new and to always sort of be broadening your own personal horizons as well as the kids like and because our caseloads change so much from year to year I mean one year I had uh, three deafblind students on my caseload and so that was a whole sort of different kind of avenue that I went down for a while because those students they since graduated mm. yeah it, there's always something new something different to learn Cool. There is. I remember this this one time I had a student who um, had surgery and came out of surgery with a very, very low vision. And um, and she was a math and science and physics student. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, she had to learn Braille. And not only did she have to learn literary Braille, but she also had to learn the code for chemistry and physics as well. And, you know, what Daphne says about, you know, you're constantly learning. Well, you know, so I, <laughs> I did not know That's the like code for chemistry and physics. And so those are things that I needed to learn before I introduced it to my student. So, you, you know... Uh, being a teacher of the visually impaired, there's so many different layers to it. But one of the major layers is that you have to spend time learning something new because you'll, you're you're going to come up to a situation where um, you know a student is wanting to take chemistry and physics, and you may not understand chemistry and physics yourself, but you have to understand the code and you have to be able to teach that code to that student. So. Um, Learning, continuous learning is, is just 
part of the game for this yeah. uh, job. Yeah, that, that's why I'd make a terrible vision teacher. As soon as they said, "Oh, you want to learn math? I'm out. I'm out. I'm gone. Sorry." Yeah, no, I think you want to take band. No, I want. To, no, 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 no. You want to take band? Can I take PE? Uh, oh yeah, they have to learn the music code. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is a music. That's right. Yeah. There's no there's no PE code though, right? That's right. That's why I'm in it. It's definitely challenging in some ways, but it is such an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's, it is a fantastic job. It's for for lots and lots of reasons. And I think one part is just the the vision community itself is a very cohesive, very supportive group, and the amazing people that I've been able to meet in BC through this job, and well, even across Canada, I just I feel so privileged to be part of the community and to be able to pull on my colleagues for support. And, and I don't know somebody else will, which is, as Sophia was saying, it's so great to be able to work with other people. And so has it surprised you? Was it everything that you thought it would be? It's definitely more than I thought it would be. I mean, I never yeah. thought that I would be taking students who are blind rock climbing and <laughs> you know i i never thought that this job would really meld with my passions of being in the outdoors um it has it has become more than what i had expected this job to be it has it's it's um it's not really a job to me it's actually just a passion yeah i yeah i yeah. i sort of see it as my hobby as well as my work it's just i I don't let go of it. It's a great, just something always on your mind, like, oh, maybe we could try doing it that way. And um, Another aspect of the job is um, uh, orientation and mobility. I don't, uh, so it's basically teaching students um, how to move around their environments, uh, whether it be indoor or outdoor, uh, with efficiency and, and effectively and safely as well. So, um, and we have in our community, um, orientation and mobility instructors who that's their job. That's, that's what they do. Um, and the UBC, UBC right now has a program, uh, in orientation mobility. It's a certificate program, a graduate certificate program. So I've been a teacher of the visually impaired for quite a while now, and we've had an orientation and mobility instructor in our school district who has worked with our students, and I've worked with him. And, you know, I, I thought that I had a really good grasp of, of what it takes to be an orientation and mobility instructor. It looked kind of fun. You get to be outside a lot. You know, you're working with maps and, and um, tactile maps, and you're... But I started the, gra um, the graduate certificate program this summer, and it was really difficult <laughs> for me. Uh, and, and I have a, such a better understanding of what it takes to be a mobility or what, you know, not only to be a mobility instructor, but also an understanding of what it is like now for students to, to, to get this instruction. Um, part of the course this year, this summer, was the blindfold component of the course. So, you know, we had to travel around Vancouver uh, blindfolded, uh, and, and, uh, you know, learn how to cross busy streets, busy intersections, uh, deal with silent smart cars, um, and, and, you know, hop onto the subway and buses and uh, navigate under, you know, the underground SkyTrain station that, you know, so, and it was really quite interesting. This entire area of orientation and mobility is so huge. I had no idea how much goes into um, being a mobility instructor, but also how much goes into training students to travel safely and efficiently. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and I think that it's going to be something that's, that's going to, you know, in my field of work, uh, taking kids out outside, it's going to be an important aspect of, of my job as well. So, uh, you, Daphne, do you have a mobility instructor who comes to? Yes, we do. Um, we have a person who provides it for our, our district and, um, certainly my training was pretty limited as far as, 
orientation mobility. We, when I took it years ago in San Francisco, then I was living in Edmonton at the time, and the instructors came to Edmonton to do some snow travel with us, which, oh, I imagine, Sophia, this will be a really interesting winter for you, just thinking about the mobility and, and the travel in the snow. Yes in the Kootenays because, wow, it sure uh, really opened my eyes when I realized just how the whole dynamic of the cane use differs when you're, you're working in snow over on a, a paved street. I mean, it's different skill, different skill set at least. Yes, different skill set, perhaps even uh, different tools. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, and, and it's, I mean, it's, I think it's so exciting when teachers have the dual um, certificate between being a teacher of the visually impaired and also the mobility because the two really do dovetail back and forth all the time. I mean, just even navigating around the school or going on a field trip, you really do need to have a sense of what it, what are the proper cane techniques to use or what's a safe way to travel in an area that... Um, have sort of inherent dangers in it. So, yeah. Great, great combo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, it is. I was just remembering uh, the course and one of our exams for for the course this summer was it was a drop off. And what that means is you have to put your blindfold on and then one of the instructor drives you around a neighborhood somewhere that you've explored in the past. Um, so they drive you around and around and around. And so you get totally confused. You have no idea where you are. And then they drop you off somewhere and then they tell you to go somewhere. So you have to figure out <laughs> where you are um, by using strategies that you've learned uh, through the course and figure out where you're where you're going and how to get there. And, and it's the how to get there part that's that sometimes for me, it was really difficult. How do you get there? Because in my mind, I could see a model of where I was and, um, and I could, I could, you know, see where I wanted to go, but there was so much in the way of where I was and where I wanted to go. Um, you know, things like street furniture and, <clears throat> you know, overhanging plants and, and overhanging shrubs and stuff like that. And, you know, perhaps there was construction going on on one street, so you couldn't really hear uh, where the traffic was, or if, if that was a clue to, to, you know, where you might want to go. So it, it was quite an interesting exercise and it, and it lasted, <laughs> we only had an hour to get from point A to point B. And I think it took me 55 minutes. I finally got there. It didn't look pretty, but I did get there. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> They do the oh, same no. thing to us when we went to guide when I went to guide dog school in San Rafael many many years ago. They drop you off and say, "Okay, find your way back." And pe yeah. people are your best asset. We weren't allowed to use people. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would have been. <laughs> How about GPS? <laughs> yeah. No GPS either. No. Harsh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you both very much for uh, for coming oh. on. Taking up your lunch hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> we just thanks. want to encourage everybody to go into become teachers of the visually impaired. We need more in BC. Yeah, we sure could so. use a bunch more. Yeah, we sure could. Okay, okay well, thank you. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Take care. Uh, all right, so, Ryan, where can people find us? People can find us online at www.atbanter.com. And where can people email us? Are you asking me? Yes. You're asking me? Oh, okay. It's at atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, Excellent. Such a show off. Huh. <laughs> uh, they can also, we have a Twitter feed, uh, at underscore banter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash atbanter. Cool. Not a backslash. Not a backslash. Forward slash. Always forward. And you can always visit Aroga Technologies' website, www.aroga.com. That's A-R-O-G-A, -A, where there is financing available. Yes, and also make sure to check out our clearance section because we're getting sick of this stuff on the shelf. <laughs> clear, clear, clear. Uh, yeah, Ryan. Rob. 
What do we got going on next week? Next week is our annual Halloween theme show. Is it, is it really? Ooh, it is. Spooky. So we need to come up okay. with a topic yeah, we for need the to show. Yeah, we need to talk about that off, off mic because I don't know what we're going to do. I have some ideas, but yes, none of them are good. <laughs> <laughs> You uh, will figure something out. Uh, all right. Well, and then uh, until next time, I have been Rob Minot. And I'm Ryan Flurry. And I am Gronk. Gronk. No, I'm Steve Barkley. Gronk. Who the hell is Gronk? Gronk. He was the he, tree. No, well, that's, that's Groot. Groot. That's Groot. Sorry. Grunt, Groot. Gronk. I'm trying to remember Gronk. <laughs> Gronk was in uh, I, it sounds uh, the uh, Emperor's New Groove, wasn't he? He was not the uh, big dude in the Emperor's New Groove. Uh, you might be right. Yeah. You might be right. We'll get our researchers on that. Yeah. All right. Let us know. All right. So are we going to keep the email address or should we change it? Well, sorry. What did we, we well, talk about? I mean, about we this? Used, we've used it for like 20 episodes, 20, 21 20 episodes. some odd episodes. So let's carry on with it. Yeah. Yeah. We no just have to practice it. it. We okay. have to practice. Podcast at Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> got it wrong again. <laughs> AT Banter Podcast at Gmail. Uh, uh, AT Banter to Podcast we, at Gmail. Why did we put podcast in it? We should have just said AT Banter. At AT Gmail. Banter at Gmail was taken. Remember? Whoever has AT Banter <laughs> at Gmail.com, sell burn, it to us. Burn in hell. <laughs> Give it to us. <laughs> yeah, so we had to add the podcast. Uh, all right, whatever. Um, okay, so we will see you all next week for the spooky show. This podcast has been brought to you by Aroga Technologies. Visit Aroga Technologies online at www.aroga.com. That's A-R-O-G-A.com. Music provided by bensound.com.